As a person with a very deep voice, I'm hired all the time for advertising campaigns. But a deep voice doesn't sell B2B. And advertising on the wrong platform doesn't sell B2B either. That's why if you're a B2B marketer, you should use LinkedIn ads. LinkedIn has the targeting capabilities to help you reach the world's largest professional audience. That's right, over 70 million decision makers all in one place. All the big wigs, then medium wigs. Also small wigs who are on the path to becoming big wigs. Okay, that's enough about wigs. LinkedIn ads allows you to focus on getting your B2B message to the right people. So, does that mean you should use ads on LinkedIn instead of hiring me, the man with the deepest voice in the world? Yes. Yes, it does. Get started today and see why LinkedIn is the place to be to be. We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash results to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash results. Terms and conditions apply. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Get your news in less than three minutes, three times per day with the Al Jazeera News Updates. Just ask your home device to play the news by Al Jazeera or subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. This episode is brought to you by Squarespace. Whether you need a landing page, a beautiful gallery, a professional blog, or an online store, it is all included with your Squarespace website. Start your free trial today at squarespace.com. Use the offer code CANADALAND. You'll get 10% off. Steve Faggy, blogger, writer of Things Media, copy editor at the Montreal Gazette, Hello. Hello. We're going to talk, Steve, about the retirement of Peter Mansbridge. We are going to talk about the point system the CRTC just changed for Canadian television, what actually makes TV Canadian. We're going to talk more CRTC. It is my jam. That's your jam. We'll talk about uh, Skinny Basic. And you are joining us from Montreal. Welcome back to the show. Thank you. This episode of Shortcuts is brought to you by Ryan Kerwin, Sandy, Bob Covery, Cole Kseki, Matthew Fessenden, Patrick Desrochers, Daniel Curry, and Megan Walker. Megan, why did you decide to be awesome? Because I listen to a lot of American and British-produced podcasts, and while they're really interesting, I missed hearing about Canadian issues and stories from Canadians. And Steve, this episode is also brought to you by Squarespace. Good, I guess. It is good. It is uh, the place to go if you need a landing page beautiful gallery, a professional blog, an online store. It is all included with your Squarespace website. I like Squarespace for many reasons. I think that it makes it possible for anybody to have a very modern, professional-looking website, very slick, beautiful to behold, professionally designed, and seamlessly integrated with commerce tools. It's really inspirational and entertaining even to just see all the different ways that people are finding to make money online and to kind of rebuild their careers through online sales. And Squarespace makes that easy with seamless commerce tools from nationally recognized brands to your favorite local shops. 
there are hundreds of thousands of businesses that trust Squarespace for all of their e-commerce needs. They have all the tools needed to track inventory, process orders, send custom emails, all through one intuitive interface. Squarespace Commerce allows you to understand every aspect of your business. Start your free trial today at squarespace.com. Use the offer code CANADALAND and you will get 10% off of your first purchase. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp, therapy online that has served over 3 million people around the world. And BetterHelp is available here in Canada. A lot of people have various blocks or reasons why they don't just reach out for that help. And one thing you'll hear people say is they just don't have the time. I would like to mount a different uh, argument here, which is that if you are talking to a mental health professional, if you're if you're chatting with somebody about your life and about your priorities, you can clear away a lot of the clutter. You can actually find yourself with more time because you have a better sense of what's important to you. Like it's an investment that can pay off even in that practical way of, of organizing your life a bit better. These are some of the advantages in, in the long run of having something like BetterHelp in your life. As the largest online therapy provider in the world, BetterHelp can provide access to mental health professionals with a wide variety of expertise in mental health. And because you listen to the show, you get 10% off of your first month at betterhelp.com slash CanadaLand. Once again, it's betterhelp.com slash CanadaLand. This episode is brought to you by AG1. Listen, taking care of your health is not always easy, but it should at least be simple. That is why for months now, I start every day by drinking AG1. I take a scoop of this green powder, I mix it in a canister with water, shake it up, and I drink it. I get hydrated and I get energized and focused and ready to take on the day knowing that I have vitamins, minerals, pre and probiotics and a lot more. These are things that science tells us we need. They are also things that I don't necessarily get every day outside of my AG1. Listen, if there's one product that I'm going to recommend that will help you elevate your health, it's AG1. And that is why I have been partnered up with them for so long. If you want to take ownership of your health, it starts with AG1. Try it now and you'll get a free welcome kit that includes a shaker bottle, a canister, a metal scoop, along with five free travel packs. You'll get a free one-year supply of vitamin D3 and K2 along with your first purchase. Go to drinkag1.com slash CanadaLand. That is drinkag1.com slash CanadaLand. Check it out. This next year will mark 30 years since I was named Chief Correspondent and Anchor of the National, a position that's an honor and a privilege to occupy. It's been an amazing time to report our history, but I've decided that this year will be my last one. I've let the CBC know that I'd like to step down from the National next July 1st, shortly after anchoring our very special Canada Day coverage for 2017. I just uh, don't know what to do with myself, Steve. I'm very sorry for your loss. It'll be great to celebrate the 150th birthday of Canada, but it's sort of ruined now because that will also be the last day of Peter Mansbridge. Maybe, maybe not. He says he's going to be leaving the National, but apparently he's going to be staying at the CBC in some capacity. So he's not going anywhere. Like he's working four days a week with summers off and that's, you know, rigorous. He's going to continue hosting special reports and Mansbridge one-on-one. Steve, when I worked at the CBC, this was called double dipping. When somebody ends their career, starts collecting their pension, but then returns as a contractor. And I think that's what we're going to see with Peter Mansbridge. Personally, I think it's interesting how much the Peter Mansbridge story is basically a carbon copy of the Lloyd Robertson story at CTV. Announcing well in advance he's going to retire, and then he's left the nightly uh, newscast, but he's still contributing part-time to other things. 
I guess that's just what old anchors do now. Like this, this is a path set in front of them and he's just following it. He's not following the path exactly because Lloyd Robertson spent the last year as the anchor of uh, CTV's national newscast, basically grooming and mentoring and introducing his audience to Lisa Laflamme, making it known that this is the person who's going to replace me. Mansbridge has done nothing of the sort. And maybe that's okay. Like this whole question, who will do this next? You know, all these articles that have come out about that. Is that really such an interesting question? I think it is interesting, not just because it's the voice of the national, but because supposedly this is going to be the new voice of the CBC, you know, the person who's going to be doing those Canada Day shows and those election and budget shows and special event stuff, assuming that Mansbridge doesn't keep doing all that. But I think the bigger question when it comes to the national is what happens to the national? We've had substitute anchors. As you mentioned, Peter's only working four days a week. So you know, we have uh, weekend people, we have plenty of people who've taken over who I think the audience would be perfectly fine with, whether it's Wendy Mesley or Ian Hannah-Mansing. But the bigger question is, this is going to be an opportunity for them to revamp the show. And what are they going to do to the show itself? You know, the CBC has been very proactive in embracing digital technologies, embracing, you know, social media and all that. Are they going to make some major changes to the show? Because this would be the time to do it. I think that even the idea that the show is the thing and that this is the flagship, this is the jewel product of the CBC is something that I I think should be challenged. I mean, John Doyle wrote this piece. It's about time. We've put up with Mansbridge and his pompous ilk for too long. Yes. And as someone pointed out on Twitter, that's somewhat ironic coming from John Doyle, a column denouncing pomposity in the most pompous way possible. Perhaps, but I read so many reactions to John Doyle's piece that were saying, I agree with everything Doyle said, but did he have to be so mean? (laughs) Which is a very Canadian response. Just to give people some idea who haven't read the Doyle piece, he doesn't like Mansbridge and hasn't for a long time. He calls him Pastor Mansbridge. He says that Mansbridge has the demeanor of an unctuous but imperious priest. But Doyle says some really, really interesting and I think apt things about the role itself, the voice of God, the man who, and it's always a man, traditionally, who explains the world to you at the end of the day and makes you feel okay about it. Uh, the traditional anchor position, he writes, which Mansbridge embodies in every scintilla in his on-air persona is outdated and essentially redundant. Coverage of major breaking news events demanded an authority figure to calm the nation, always male, always urbane, always a dad-like figure. That such anchor types are still presented to us is insulting, wrote Doyle. I have to agree. It's almost like we're scrambling like to like, we're going to hire a new god. Who's the new god going to be? Well, the new god should, should be a woman or the new god should not be white. But do we need a new news god to explain Canada to us hours after we already know that news? I mean, there's only like 12 minutes of the national that's news anymore anyhow. And just as, as a viewing pattern, appointment viewing, like it's time for the national, like we don't say what's going to happen with the Global's newscast, even though it, it handily beats the national in the ratings, CTV trounces the national. We all know Mansbridge from those special events, but who watches the national anymore? Well, I mean, a lot of people still watch the national. Uh, I mean, it still has, uh, what is it, 200,000 some viewers uh, every night. I think you might be talking about the first 10 minutes. What's the drop off after the news is done? And he goes into his chat sessions with Andrew Coyne and uh, et cetera. Oh, who knows? I mean, I'm definitely not one of those watchers, but I think there are a lot of Canadians, and I think that's something that they're definitely going to keep in mind is they have a lot of viewers, maybe older viewers, people who've been there for decades who've, you know, watched Peter Mansbridge on CBC at 10 o'clock delivering the news. And uh, you don't want to alienate those people while you make whatever changes you want to make. But I think there is still sort of a necessity, not necessarily for the national itself, because it's a national newscast and there's several people that can anchor it. 
But in terms of that sort of face of CBC News, that voice of God, you know, if we have a September 11th-like event or there's an election night, you know, you need that anchor to present the news authoritatively. I think there's still a demand for that, maybe not on a daily basis, but certainly for major events. I know that people like that, that when something awful happens or there's an election or there's just some unifying moment or a scary moment, that there's like, okay, that's a familiar face. That's a calm presence. But where is it written that it's news's job to calm you or give you things that are familiar? Like the job is to tell you what's going on in the world. So as long as when those events happen, the CBC is giving us accurate information, that's sort of what they're supposed to do. I'm not talking necessarily about calmness or feeling good or even anything like that. More the sense of trust, a sense of authoritativeness. You know, you need to be able to trust what you're seeing on TV. And, uh, you know, as much as we can dismiss Peter Mansbridge as just the guy who reads the teleprompter during the national, that job also has behind the scenes editorial components. And I think people trust that while he may not be, you know, the chief person in charge or he may not be making most of the big decisions, you know, he's still sort of a gatekeeper for keeping untrustworthy news out of the national and putting trustworthy news in. I I know maybe I know I know I know it's maybe an illusion. But it's no, it's, it's not. That exists, but it's not a feature. It's a bug. It's a bug. You see, it as a bug that anchors decide what goes into their newscasts. No, it was it was great when Dan Rather did that, and the fact that Mansbridge has resisted every attempt to modernize the National to make it more of a news-heavy show and doesn't care about the ratings and has just turned it into this sort of insiders elite chat show is not a feature. It's not to the credit of the National. I got no problem with Mansbridge. I don't know him. But by any estimation, it's been a long time since he's like covered a story or has any kind of reporting role. He's a very good. Hey, he was in the limo with Trudeau. Okay. (laughs) Do not forget that part. When there are people at the CBC who are off reporting stories and figuring out what should be on. And then there's this guy who can kind of like at his whim say, I don't like that story. Let's not do anything like that anymore. That didn't play well for my purposes. That is not like a plus for the national that that guy wielded so much power. Okay. (laughs) If you say so. I I will tie us into the story that we had in the wake of Mansbridge's announcement regarding his salary, which just if people didn't catch the story, we actually found documentation. We had leaked to us his employee file, a recent employee file from the CBC that revealed this question. You know, CBC went in front of the Senate committee a few years back and suggested that their on-air talent might be making as little as $80,000 a year and was criticized by senators. No, in fact, Mansbridge makes a base salary of over $800,000 a year, which means his pension's going to be in the five dollars $600,000 a year range. And then he has these ad rems for, uh, what is it, prominence and excellence, uh, for wardrobe, uh, for overtime. Basically, the guy's making well above a million dollars, and it might be as much as one point six a year, and will make over a half a million dollars in pension in perpetuity. That got a lot of response online. Steve, what was your response? From a journalistic perspective, I think if it's true, and again, we're talking about a leaked personnel file, that hasn't been confirmed. But if it's true, and I think, you know, there's definitely a public interest in knowing how much the most expensively paid person at a publicly funded broadcaster makes. So I think I had no issue there. I think my issue is more how this happened in the first place, which is someone, presumably someone in human resources or someone connected to that, leaked an employee personnel file to the media. And I think that is very disturbing. That's like the first thing you learn in HR school is you do not leak 
information in confidential employee files. So I would be very surprised if the CBC did not launch an investigation and either someone got fired or sued if they're no longer working for the company. But in a journalistic sense, then yeah, I think it's, it's totally fair game. I also don't know, like a million dollars sounds like a lot. I don't know how that compares with the private sector or how outrageous it is. Peter Mansbridge should be the highest salary person at CBC just because of what his position is. And I would expect his replacement probably not making as much as he did, but to also be pretty high up on that list. To respond first to your question about my sourcing, um, of course, I can't tell you much about that, but I will say this. I would be very surprised to see any kind of legal action for a bunch of reasons, primarily as shocking as it may be to think that there are people uh, within HR who would give Canada Land information. There have been so many of them at this point that I don't know how the CBC would even begin to whittle down that list. But the, the thing that came back to us, I think why we got the information in the first place and also the response that we're getting from the CBC, from people privately messaging me since that story came out, is that they have been cut beyond the bone. This compensation we're learning about Mansbridge kept going up and up during an era where CBC was just laying off foreign correspondents, laying off entire teams, regional coverage. The product has been degraded by this constant state of financial dire straits. And when people find out what he's been getting during that time, and you know, other people say like, well, this is just uh, what he's worth. There's advertising on that program, but the show's in like second and third place all the time. So there, there really is no, you can't make an open market argument about management salary because there, there was never any kind of like open bidding on him. This is something that accrued over years and it has to do with host culture, that he is getting paid more than any of the executives who make these decisions about him and is arguably one of the most famous people in Canada. And he kind of runs things over there. Yeah. I mean, I think there's, there's a larger issue of not just Mansbridge, I'm sure his colleagues at the private networks are similarly similarly overpaid, and no, you know, people with with those kinds of salaries in general, you know, whether they're bank CEOs or or whatever, get these huge salaries. And if you're someone like Steve Jobs, where you know you're worth your weight in gold, that's one thing. But if you're an executive who can easily be replaced, um, I don't know if those those salaries are really justified. I think Mansbridge, as much as Canadians love him, can be replaced. Okay, Steve, this is the time when we thank our second sponsor today, FreshBooks, the makers of small business accounting software designed for you, whether you're a freelancer or running a small business. FreshBooks, the founding sponsor of Canada Land, makes accounting tasks easy, fast, and secure. You can start sending invoices, tracking time, and capturing expenses in minutes. This is something that I just found out about FreshBooks. 97% of customers highly recommend it. And the other thing that they found about their customer base is that you free up two days a month to focus on the actual work that you do and not the invoicing when you use FreshBooks. You don't need a credit card to try FreshBooks out for 30 days. You never sign a contract. You can cancel at any time. It is a fantastically built Canadian product. Check it out at freshbooks.com. Try it out for free. When you become a customer, tell them that Canada Land sent you and you will be doing this show a favor. Thank you, FreshBooks. Steve, this is when we take a second or two to note duly a few things that came to our attention in the media. What have you got for us this week? The Huffington Post, trying to, uh, you know, counter all of these suggestions that they're not about real journalism, came out with a story last week about Sophie Gregoire Trudeau. Let me uh, give you the headline here. Sophie Gregoire Trudeau recycles outfit for China visit. And the story was basically about how she wore the same dress in China 
that she had worn to a Canada Day celebration. Now, I have two issues with this. One is, it's factually incorrect. She is wearing, apparently, the same dress. But in Canada Day, she had a hat on, and she's wearing different shoes. So don't use the term outfit when you're talking about a piece of an outfit. Damn. And also... Obviously, it is, like, crazy sexist, right? And it tries to, like, make this into a positive thing by saying, oh, she's like Kate Middleton, because Kate Middleton also wore the same dress twice. Apparently, these are the only two women in the entire world who will wear a dress more than once. But, like, you know, we're seeing her next to pictures of Justin Trudeau, who I'm sure is wearing a suit that he has worn a hundred times. This is the 21st century. Can we please get over stuff like this? Duly noted. I want to note something that I read in the National Post today. Actually, I read it in a few different places, but it was called a National Post exclusive. It's this uh, long-form story about the weeks that Edward Snowden spent basically as a fugitive in Hong Kong by uh, reporter Teresa Tedesco. It's fascinating. This is after Snowden uh, leaked the information to uh, Greenwald and Poitra and then became the most wanted man in the world and how he was secreted away by immigration lawyers to the slums of Hong Kong where different families gave him refuge this period before he was able to get to Moscow and, and be safe for the for where he's been since. So it's an interesting story, but I'm going to note it for a couple reasons. The first is that it ain't no exclusive. There's some great reporting in there, but you can read versions of this story through like three or four different news sources that all kind of came out at the same time that this sort of uh, previously murky period in the Snowden story is now getting detailed. It ain't a National Post exclusive. And I think it's just the kind of thing that like only reporters care about that anyhow. Why slap that exclusive on your, your – you're just sort of daring jerks like me to question the validity of it. But that, that's not the real problem with this story. And there are some problems – like the story is a bit fucked up. Initially, it misgendered Chelsea Manning in the way that uh, it referred to Chelsea Manning. And they, they corrected that without a correction. And it's fucked up because of this sort of poverty porn that happens as they're kind of describing Snowden in these cramped Hong Kong apartments. Children's clothes blow in the dirty air, hanging over barbed wire. The squalor is visible. Open garbage rots in stairwells and in open pits that were once courtyards. The stench aided by the unbearable heat and humidity, is overpowering. These slums are not just places where dreams come to die. It's where hope... <laughs> it's a walking cliche. Steve, it's where hope is decimated. Poverty exists, okay? Yes, there are these impoverished neighborhoods in Hong Kong, and you're getting into this very dramatic setting, and there are these huge photographs of the people who gave refuge to Edward Snowden. And you got to read between the lines a little bit because they're sort of hailed as these heroes, which perhaps they are, where Snowden is saying, you know, they took incredible personal risk in taking me in and he would sort of uh, show up at their doorstep and be there for a few nights, leave them a couple hundred bucks and then go somewhere else. But when you actually read it from their point of view, which it's not told from their point of view, you, you kind of have to infer a lot of this stuff. What happened is these people are themselves refugees and they are living in the slums of Hong Kong. And Hong Kong has only taken in like 52 refugees, like given them actual status, in the last 24 years. So these people are, are, are really in a really vulnerable situation. And they have this immigration lawyer who's pleading their case. And the way they came to get hooked up with Snowden is they would get a phone call from their immigration lawyer saying, can you go outside? A car is going to pull up. A guy is going to come out and we need you to feed him and give him shelter. And they didn't feel like they had a choice. 
And God help me, if I ever need a, 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 a immigration lawyer to help me with a refugee claim, I hope that he doesn't call me up and demand that I harbor a fugitive. So that aspect of the story, the fact that these people were really put in a compromised position where they felt like they had no choice is one aspect of it. The other thing is, here they are, their first names, the neighborhoods they live in, and their photos are being printed in the National Post. I can't imagine that's going to help their refugee claim that it's now revealed that they granted harbor to a fugitive. It's good PR for them, I guess, but it's not dealt with in the piece. And it's this hanging question I had after reading it. It's like, what are the ethics of exposing these people and writing about them in this way? Steve, let's creep into your clubhouse and talk about the CRTC. <laughs> sure. Let's talk about the point system. This stuff has always just been such fodder for satire. It's, it's always struck me as ludicrous and uh, it seems like it's gotten maybe more so. It depends, you know, to your average Canadian viewer, it's probably ludicrous and not important, but to people who create television and, and work in creative roles in Canadian television, this is very important. Just to sort of summarize the issue here, Canadian television, just like Canadian music, there is a system to determine whether or not the stuff that is created is Canadian. In the case of television, it's mostly about whether these shows get access to these independent production funds that are mostly funded by cable and satellite companies that together with government funding and funding from public broadcasters make up about half of the money that funds Canadian television series these days. And the point system basically is about the nationality of people in key roles. That is the writer, the director, and it has a couple of ones that are a bit more curious like music composer and art director, as well as the two leading roles in the series. There are 10 points in total, and if you make six of these, then for the purposes of getting access to these independent production funds, you're considered Canadian. And that's down from eight, uh, which has a lot of people working in creative worry that this will mean that more series, more Canadian series, will check off these points in the, the less important categories, but bring in these leading roles as D-list American celebrities who will come across the border and star in these shows rather than Canadian actors. Let me actually apologize. It's way too glib to just dismiss it as, as ludicrous. And there's an aspect of it that is easy to make fun of, but you're absolutely right. Whatever your thoughts are on a protected industry, and this is a highly protected industry, uh, one that might not even exist if not for these protections, there are people who work in these fields and those protections mean that they can work. So I think that one of the reasons why it's so frequently derided is that there's two different purposes. If you're trying to determine what is Canadian TV in terms of its content, that's a very different question than if it's a Canadian production. It gets mocked because, like you say, you could have a show that's uh, set in the States. The two lead actors can be washed up American actors, but because the people writing it and directing it are Canadian, it gets deemed as, as Canadian content. And I think people make fun of the idea that, like, how is this Canadian culture in any way? But maybe that was never the point. It was always sort of part of the point. There was an idea of telling Canadian stories, but I think it was always a muddled role because it was also about stimulating this production sector that we otherwise might not have. And now that they've knocked two points off of that, it never worked, but now it'll work even less for either purpose. Now it's definitely going to have a, a real big impact on people who want to be one of those points. Yeah. And, and it's important to note that all of these points are about jobs. Like, th this is one thing that, that struck me as odd when I looked at this point system, is that none of it is about the content, none of it is about what is actually shown on screen. It's all about where the key people in the series come from. 
And the argument has been made that it shouldn't matter where a, a series is set. In fact, that was taken out of the point system previously over concerns that, you know, a Canadian story is a Canadian story, regardless of where it's set. But I'm wondering if the point of this entire system is not more to protect jobs than it is to protect Canadian culture. The upshot here, it seems to me that they are making concessions to the broadcasters who never wanted this if they have to, um, you know, make these shows. And even making shows for a lot of these companies is just sort of something that they kind of have to do in order to be a broadcaster and to rebroadcast American shows for Canadian audiences, which is where the money is. But why not try to make shows that are going to be popular? And it's, it's long been perceived that the less Canadian you can make the actual content, the more chance of commercial success it has, which is sort of at odds with a lot of trends in television, which are hyper-specific, as we talked about on, on a recent episode of, of The Monday Show. Honestly, I don't know where exactly that comes from. You know, I, I was a big fan of Law & Order. It was very clearly set in New York. If you look at series from around the world, Coronation Street is very obviously set in Britain, and nobody has a problem watching that in Canada. You look at a series like uh, Borgen from Denmark that you know, achieved huge international success. It is about politics in Denmark. You can't get more local than that. But it's still popular, even from people who've never visited there. I sort of dismiss this idea and this trend that I'm seeing in Canadian television, where the setting is sort of genericized to this sort of anywheresville USA setting, because they think that this will make it more popular to sell internationally. I don't have any data to back it up, but I, I feel like that's a mistake to do that. And I don't know if it's the Canadian executives who are making these calls or the American ones, but I think they really need to re-examine you know, how important that really is. I feel like we're in a repetitive loop with this stuff. And what I want to focus on with you is really like you combine this uh, degradation of the point system with what's happening with uh, you know, CRTC basically tried to bail out cable TV by forcing the skinny basic. They think that this is the path to keeping people within the cable and satellite TV regime is if you give consumers more choice for a la carte. And of course, the broadcasters don't want to do that. They make the $25 skinny basic a terrible consumer choice. Aren't we really just talking about the death of traditional linear TV as we know it? Linear TV is changing. There's, there's absolutely no doubt about that. Like when we say that linear TV is dying, I don't think it necessarily goes that television service, you know, the cable companies and, and the... Uh, the satellite and IPTV companies, that they're dying along with it. They fully realize that. And so they've embraced PVRs. They have embraced on-demand programming. Uh, they've embraced all of these different methods of getting access to television content. But you still have this big sort of hurdle to get over when you're starting to get TV service where, you know, the most basic package is not going to be cheap unless it's regulated because – you don't make money as a cable company when you have this huge network and you're charging people 25 bucks a month. There's still a good deal from getting television through television service provider versus getting it online or, you know, directly to that through other sources. If you look at, for example, Sportsnet, you can get Sportsnet through TV provider for maybe 10 bucks a month, or you can get it directly from Sportsnet without a TV provider for 25 bucks a month. So it's still cheaper to get it through a television provider. That may change, and if it does, I think you'll see a lot of people dropping traditional television service. But, you know, the fact that people don't sit in front of the TV and watch TV the same way they did 20 years ago doesn't necessarily mean that these television providers are going to disappear. We're still going to need to get television 
content from somewhere. Yeah, I'm not, you know, I think there's obviously the industry would say, are you kidding me? Do you know how huge a business this still is, whatever trouble it's in? But for me, it's about just like having a little bit of prescience about what's coming up. And the writing is on the wall. I mean, we just got the first indication of how Viceland is doing in the States. This is like the great hope of keeping millennials into the linear TV system. And the early numbers are showing that when they switched from History Channel 2, History Channel 2 to Viceland, they lost more than half of their viewers. And in the States, Viceland is getting like 60,000 viewers on average, okay? And there's no reason to believe that Viceland's doing any better in Canada, and we're like roughly a tenth of the size. So does that mean that there are 6,000 people watching Viceland in Canada, and that is the great hope for millennials watching television? I mean, I think it might be like newspapers, where you think that you're on a slow downward slope, but then it just turns into a cliff. The alternative explanation, of course, would be that Vice is greatly exaggerating how important it is to millennials. But that can't possibly be true, right? I mean, Vice uh, overselling itself? Come on. What ridiculousness. The reality is, yeah, it's, it's totally in decline. And you can't really have any other option when you're, you know, reaching 90% of the public. We're seeing the numbers slowly creep down from 90 to 85 to 80% of households having a cable subscription. So, you know, people are going to start cutting the cord. But when you're still in 80% of homes, that's still a huge business. So I think the change is it's there, but I think it's exaggerated a bit. It'll still be quite a while, you know, until people start disconnecting in such numbers that the cable TV business model doesn't work anymore. Steve, thank you for your level-headed input, as always. You're very welcome. That is your Canada Land Shortcuts. I hope you enjoyed it. You can email me at any time at jesse at canadalandshow.com and I will read what you send me and respond when I can. We are on Twitter at Canadaland. Steve, where can people find you? Blog is uh, blog.fagstein.com and uh, the Twitter is at Fagstein. Our website is canadalandshow.com. Our crowdfunding site is patreon.com slash Canadaland. I make this show with Kevin Sexton. Canadaland is syndicated to community and campus radio stations across this country on linear FM radio. You can check it out, I think, in 28 different places in this country, and that is handled by Russell Gregg. Next week, we have all of our shows coming out Canada Land on Monday, Commons on Tuesday, The Imposter on Wednesday, Shortcuts on Thursday. If you like what we do, please support us. So, so even though you have a full slate next week, it's still just four days a week. You are basically Peter Mansbridge. And not sorry on Friday. <laughs> oh, 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 okay. The, 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 the online value-added stuff. That's it. It's just the same model repeated. That's what we're doing here. Okay. <laughs> you got me. Okay. <laughs>